Well, good afternoon, everyone. We have quite a few out with uh, various illnesses and so on. Uh, give you a little uh, report, perhaps. I talked to Charnel a couple hours ago, and uh, she sounds pretty good. A little weak yet, but a whole lot better than she did. And I think I even sent a text the other day that her fever was gone. She was feeling better. Uh, and that's still the case today. She says she's getting awfully frustrated and bored. Has to pretty well lay there. She's able to get up and use the walker to walk around the room some. Uh, but they had to keep her in ICU because they don't have oxygen tubes big enough to give her what she needs in a regular hospital room. So she's still highly dependent on oxygen as the primary uh, issue right now. Uh, I know sometimes when the lungs have been impacted by uh, the virus that it takes quite a while to get, uh, get them to work enough to provide all the oxygen you need is to get around on your own. I know I heard of a case recently where somebody had to carry his oxygen bottle around for about six weeks after he left the hospital. Uh, so she does have, she said, some congestion coming out of her lungs, which is good. Uh, get rid of anything that's there, and maybe that'll help the oxygen to work better as well. So I, I, we still need to be praying for her. Uh, not quite with the intensity, perhaps, that we did when it sounded like she might not make it. Uh, but still in all, she's there and needs oxygen and, and uh, God's help. She says, what I really want is to be healed and get out of here. Uh, tired of it already. And uh, Cacho and Dorothy have been pretty sick, too, possibly with the flu. We don't know exactly what is going on there, but... She seems to be getting much better, and he's still, as of yesterday morning at least, he is still uh, not out of the woods. He's still pretty sick uh, so and shaky. So uh, keep them in mind as well, and particularly, I guess, him at this point. Uh, Nelson told me earlier this morning that, uh, that Pat is uh, in very, very... Uh, serious condition. She had a major stroke a few days ago and hasn't been able to move her right arm or leg since and uh, tested positive for COVID when she was in the hospital. <coughs> I know not what that means. Everybody that goes in there pretty much gets <laughs> tested positive because they get money from the government for every case that they uh, oversee. But on top of that, there's also pneumonia in the lungs. So uh, she's in pretty serious condition, back on hospice, and they've got her on morphine now <coughs> because of the pain and so on. So uh, we, we should keep Pat in our prayers as well. <coughs> Excuse me. Nelson, would you mind getting me some water? Charnel usually does that. Does that? Does that? Uh, he's. Uh, I might need it here. My throat's a little scratchy. Yes. 
Yeah, you don't notice some of those things. You never miss the water till the well runs dry, you know. <coughs> Charnel does an awful lot of things around here to to help plan and cause things to happen, and we don't always see it, but uh, she is always has been a real big help. So we we need her back. All right, let's get to Micah chapter three. We went through the first two chapters last week. Oh, I appreciate that. And uh, it's an indictment against Israel and Judah, uh, both for our national sins. And, of course, there are overtones there for the problems that were in the church, as there are all through the prophecies. But we'll see here that in this book, uh, in particular maybe, there is, there are sections that are more for uh, national Israel, and there are sections that have more to do with the church. Now, there's some overlap both directions because the good things that are about to come to the church will also come to national Israel in the millennium, but not until then. And sometimes in here the context will show you that it has to be talking about the church. Uh, in Micah 5, just for instance, and we might get there today, it's talking about how men will be sent out from the church and there will be someone there who goes the, against the Assyrian and sends them packing. Well, that can only be talking about someone from the church because none of the prophecies indicate anybody is going to send the Assyrian packing when he comes into our land uh, on a national level. We are going to be taken over and taken into captivity. So nobody's going to save the nation. But there are those who will save the church. There is a difference. So kind of keep that in mind as we go through this context, because it does emphasize the church, especially in chapter 4. But in 3 he says, And I said, Here I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and you princes of the house of Israel, it is not for you to know justice. After all, you're in charge. You should be wise. You should be educated. You should know judgment and proper justice. But he's heavily implying you don't. It goes on to say, Who hate the good and love the evil. As you examine the leadership of this nation and Britain and Europe, for that matter, wherever Israel is spread, Australia, uh, particularly bad down there right now, they're going door to door arresting people and putting them in concentration camps now if they haven't been vaccinated. Uh, we've been reading that on the alternative news here for quite some time that that was coming. And... Uh, it has now arrived in Australia, and it has arrived in very small quantities here, uh, but it's going to get much, much worse, and pretty soon uh, they're going to be after anybody that's been unvaccinated. Is that good judgment? <laughs> well, that's pretty poor. And they hate good and love evil. 
Go, go down the list of our leaders, and there it is, the things they say, the things they do. Who pluck off their skin from off them, and their flesh from off their bones. Now, when you kill people, they die, and they go back to the dust. Their flesh comes off, their bones are stripped bare, they're dead. And that's what they're doing right now. They have a program going to kill as many of us as at all possible. And they'll keep bringing in more things to make it worse. Because that's their goal and their purpose. Because they hate good and love evil. And murder is not beyond them at all. And you can apply that, of course, to abortions and killing babies after they're born. They take them apart. The vaccine has baby parts in it. Do I want that? You know? There are other reasons than just medical why I wouldn't want that vaccine. Dead babies in the vaccine. Take the flesh off the baby's bones. They use their organs to make vaccines and to experiment and so on. It's, it's, it's almost beyond belief. Just almost beyond comprehension. Who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin off them. They break their bones and chop them up in pieces as for the pot and his flesh within the cauldron. There have been many reports, and I have no doubt that they are true, that many of our leaders also are into human sacrifice and into cannibalism. And they take the flesh right off the bones and eat it. Real popular music, music uh, star, pop star, recently went through a ritual where they brought her in on a table with other foods and were enacting eating her. And then she got up off the table when that part was done and sat down with them and had human flesh for dinner. And she said it wasn't too bad. What are the leading pop stars? The people worship her music. Katy Perry. And there are others that are just as bad. Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus. And just start going down the list. They're into worshiping Satan. And Satan wants all the human sacrifice he can get. Both in terms of religious fervor and in terms of getting rid of the purpose of God's creation, and that is to make us part of his family. He's after it in both ways. Well, this is literal. This is, this is fulfilled prophecy as we sit here today. Then shall they cry to the Eternal, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time, as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. Maybe a call to God here and there. No, he's not going to listen. Not going to hear them. Thus says the Eternal concerning the prophets that make my people go into error, that bite with their teeth, 
and cry peace, and he that puts not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. So God is not giving them a message. And they cry out and say, well, I'm, I'm a representative of God. What about some of these big evangelical preachers that are on the TV that people adore and worship and follow? They say they have a message for God. They say we're going to have a wonderful time and that we're going to have peace. And on and on it goes. And they endorse the vaccine. God's not going to give them a message. He's not going to, they're not speaking from God. And they prepare war against Him. Well, they do that in speaking against him, in speaking for the new world order and for Satan's government, which is coming down upon us now. They're going to be all for it. They will join in with the new world religion, and already are, just one degree or another. It hasn't appeared in an undeniable way yet, but the beginnings of it are stirring. So they're preparing war against God while they're saying they're prophets of God. Therefore, night shall be to you that you shall not have a vision, and it shall be dark to you. Not a word to say. No word from God. Won't be able to see anything. That you shall not divine. You won't have anything to say. And the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. So all their religious fervor for Satan and so-called for God is going to lead them in total darkness. And when God does his wonderful work, what are they going to have to say? They didn't know about it. They didn't understand it. They didn't have a clue what God is going to do. They've been in total darkness. And then when God does do something, it'll take them totally by surprise. Then shall the seers be ashamed and the diviners confounded. Yes, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer of God. They won't be able to say a word. Now, notice the contrast in what Micah says about himself, because he had been sent by God to give them a different message than that that the prophets of that day were giving the people. They were trying to say peace and everything's going to be okay in the nation, and Micah came and said, uh-uh. But what did he have behind him? There's the key. But truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Eternal and of judgment and of might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. God, is, he said, is giving me the power, the correct judgment, the might. I don't know what the difference here between might and power is, but... Uh, the strength to go up against whatever is put up against him, I think, would be what might would be in this case. And God would 
guide him in telling Israel and Jacob their sin. We're going to have the same thing in power and in the might of God, by the Spirit of God, uh, very shortly uh, in the church. It's coming. Micah was speaking of his day and his time, but he's writing a prophecy for the end. And he told Zerubbabel there in Zechariah 4, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. So not human might or power. And Micah acknowledges that. His power came from the Spirit of God. So he could say whatever he needed to say, whether they liked it or not. And the world is not going to like, no part of the world is going to like what those who are sent to preach have to say. They're just not going to like it. Try to kill them. That's what they've always done to the prophets. Uh, Israel has, Gentiles have for that matter, for the most part. Hear this, I pray you, you heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. Whatever good there was in the U.S. Constitution, and there was a lot of good in it, essentially based on uh, British common law, which was based on the Bible, there's an awful lot of good stuff in the Constitution, although there's some things there that won't be in God's kingdom. That's okay. branch, they're doing what they want to do. They build up Zion with blood and the place of Zion or the now desolate city of Jerusalem, but the capitals of our peoples.
until Christ brings back the judgment in the millennium. Do we believe in politics or in God, in His Word? Verse 11, the heads thereof judge for reward. Is there any payola in our government? Do they put pork barrel in every bill they pass to line their pockets? The priests thereof teach for hire. They're in it for the money. The prophets, therefore, divine for money. In this country today, no matter where you go, it's all about power and money, or money that gives power. It's all about money. So that's what he says here. Whether it's civil government, religious government, they're all after materialism. They're not seeking God. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. So they live totally contrary to God in every way, And then they'll use his name and give him lip service and say, oh, no trouble will come. Everything's going to be okay. We're going to have an economic recovery, and there is no inflation, of course. Everything's just fine. Biden even said the other day, what was that quote? America is back or something like that. Here, we're we're back. Those may not be the exact words, but in other words, we're recovering. We're going to be fine. He knows he's lying. Well, he may, he may not. He may not have that much mentality left. But nonetheless, what mentality there is there, no, they're going to take us under as a communist country. They know that. They're working feverishly on it every day but still trying to keep the people believing everything's going to be all right. What a bunch of lying, upside down. Could Micah say it any clearer? It's right here. Therefore shall Zion, for your sake, be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaped, the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. Low down, lay low. Now that doesn't mean that Jerusalem, where we now understand it is, and Zion, uh, the joy of all the land, is going to be. He's not talking about physical Jerusalem or Zion. He's talking about the leaders of the nation. And they're going to be plowed under like a field. And this nation is going under the plow, is the analogy here. Uh, you could say captivity. You could say decimation. You could use a lot of different analogies or terms that God is about to do to destroy this nation. But here he's talking to the leadership in the context. That's very clear all the way through this chapter. And they're the ones that are going to be Now it changes in chapter 4. 
and we get discussion about where the church will be this. Because he made it very clear the governments are coming down. Our whole government is coming down. Jeremiah says, as we've quoted many times, It's already here on some level. It's not on every street corner. Well, let's look at chapter 4 then in that light. But in the last days, it doesn't say in the last days of the end or the last days of men. The end of the world as we know it is a common expression. Most of the prophecies are more specific than that and have to do with specific events that are going to occur and are referring to these last few days we have left before this total destruction comes on us. So in the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the eternal shall be established in the top of the mountain. Now, he's already told us here he's going to take down the top leaders of the nation. They're going down. So who's he going to raise up? All the prophecies indicate he's going to raise the church up. He's going to raise a remnant of that church. He's going to raise two leaders to lead them. And they're going to go up against the world and defeat them until the last three and a half days. Great power and might, as Micah said, is going to be put up against this world. And it won't be hundreds of millions of soldiers. It's basically going to just be two men by the power of God. And they're going to find out what the power of God is all about. Because two men on their own couldn't fight their way out of a paper bag up against Satan and the armies of this world. It's all by the power of God. So God is going to raise up his government. Did he not say there in Zechariah 1 and 2 that Christ will come and dwell with us, be with us, and give that power and that strength and those blessings? And there will be a wall of defense or a fire of defense around us and a covert from the heat and the storm. Well, he's going to do this. So it's talking about him establishing his government here at the end. At the same time, he's tearing down the national governments. And where's it going to be? It's established in Zion. It won't really be established in Jerusalem. Because 70 weeks after the order to build Jerusalem is given... It's going to be taken over by Satan and the beast power. And they will defile the altar there. But the church will not have great power at that time. They will have been building. 
But their power starts when they're forced out of Jerusalem to Zion, and it goes out from Mount Zion. So it'll be established in the top of the mountains. Zion, the joy of all the land. Exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. There's your remnant coming together. And many peoples, says nations, I think peoples would fit better because but they are coming from many, many nations, north, south, east, and west. It doesn't mean the whole of Bulgaria or the whole of Japan are coming, but some people out of the nations wherever they've been called. And they'll come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Eternal and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, And we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion in the word of the Eternal from Jerusalem. Now I said Jerusalem will be taken over by the beast, and they will, but it's going to be this area. I mean, the whole area is going to be protected up until the time that they're allowed to come in and defile the temple. Then the area will probably get smaller that God is protecting. He has to protect the whole area for a while because his treasures are buried in the eastern part of it. Uh, His city is in the kind of the western side and somewhat north, pretty much the middle, and Zion is as well. So he'll have to protect it in order for his church to get done what needs done. Go to the mountains and bring wood. So it's not just protection around the city side. It's bigger than that. Well, who's going to come worship? Is it going to be the world? No, it says they will all worship the beast and the false prophet. The whole world, just God's remnant, would be coming to do this. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations far off. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, we've always quoted that as speaking of the time when the millennium would start. And there's not much separation, really, in terms of years, between the time the witnesses are given this power that it's talking about and Christ returns and sets up the millennium. You're only talking about four and a half years down the road between those two events. And the application here to the church is all these people who have been warring against each other and saying, you're the Laodiceans and we're the Philadelphians, ha-ha, and so on, aren't going to make war anymore. They'll either be in the tribulation, dying and martyred, or they will come and live in peace to serve God in Zion. One of the two. So they won't make war anymore, and then a few years later, the nations themselves won't make war anymore. And that's not entirely true. This is somewhat of a generality. Because even in the millennium, there will be those who do not want to obey God. And if they don't come to the feast, they won't have rain. And I suspect there will be some, or he wouldn't say that. 
And then at the end of the millennium, Satan is going to be turned loose and go out and stir up nations to fight again. So when he makes this statement, it is not an all-inclusive evermore, because the Bible gives us examples that are different from this. But generally speaking, uh, it is certainly true. There will be peace in the millennium, and there will be peace in Zion, where God's people are. They're not going to fight. Won't it be amazing when all these people from all these different groups, or just independent on their couches or wherever they are today, all come together and all recognize one leadership that God gives? Because now, they listen to this one, they listen to that one, they listen to another one, they have feelings against each other and against each organization, and it's a mess. But there, they will recognize God put these in charge, we will do what they say. Wow, that's going to be a lot different than what we've been experiencing the last quarter century. Now he goes back more to the church here in verse 4, specifically. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Eternal of hosts has spoken it. As I recall, when I looked this expression up, the vine and the fig tree, it's only used twice in the Bible in, the, in this particular manner. One is in Zechariah 3, last verse, where it says, under the administration of Joshua there, which is here at the end, uh, every man would sit under his vine and his fig tree. And here again in Micah 4, where it's leading into a specific discussion about the church and its leadership and its particular condition right now. Vines are mentioned, fig trees are mentioned, but I don't, I think these were the only two when I looked it up that said it this way. And one is definitely talking about the church, not the millennium. And I think that this is too. Not that it won't happen in the millennium, but that's not what this is referring to ahead of that in the last days. For all people will walk, everyone in the name of his God, And we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now see, he makes a separation right there between the people who are worshiping, still worshiping their own God. Beast, false prophet, Satan, whoever it is they worship. But we, those that gather at Mount Zion, will worship our God. See the difference there? In that day, says the Eternal, will I assemble her that halts, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. Now, does he not say that he's going to do all those things to the church here at the end? Have we not lived and experienced it? Isaiah 35 is about the beginning of this, where he says the lame will walk, the deaf will hear and the blind will see, and all of those so-called millennial conditions will be here ahead of time. 
And here he starts talking about healing the church. He's going to give us the deer legs we need to be able to build the temple. Because most of the people who are going to be coming here are going to be old. I have no doubt of that. There will be some young, but probably not too many. Because those who have been tried and tested and proved throughout the decades will primarily be the ones who come. Many are called, few were chosen. And there ain't been many calls since 86 and even before that. So it's speaking of those who were called, and they're getting old. There will be old men who can compare worldwide to the church of the great God, as it's called in Ezra. House of the great God is the way he puts it. Same thing. But I expect that's going to be the name when it all is said and done, because that's what God put in Ezra. So, he's going to have to do some healing. And he does say he'll do signs and wonders there in Zechariah 3. And that those signs and wonders are going to be what reveal his servant, the branch, Zerubbabel, who will come to take charge. It says there in Isaiah 52 that they will see eye to eye when God brings back Zion. When he starts blessing, when he starts healing, (coughs) when he starts doing things that men can't do, then the branch will recognize it and show up. (coughs) So that's what he's talking about right here. Let's go on and see that. Verse 7, And I will make her that halted a remnant, uses that word, a remnant, we were staggering around. Uh, have we been sure-footed the last 25 years? Have we known exactly where we're going or what we're doing as the whole church? <coughs> we thought we did back in the days of Worldwide through the 60s and 70s. And then we kind of got lost in a morass of confusion. So we've not been walking straight along the path. We've been halting. And her that was cast far off, a strong people. (coughs) Well, we were spewed out, cast far off. Now, is this talking about our physical nation of the United States today? No, he's going to destroy it. He's not going to bring a remnant back now uh, to save it. But he is with the church. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever. So he says he's going to come dwell with us at Mount Zion. And there'll be much men and cattle there, and he will be there. Well, what about the forever? Is this talking about the millennium? No. It's talking about very shortly here now. And once he comes and begins to rule the apple of his eye, his remnant... That is never going to change, because he'll be with them all the way through the tribulation until the resurrection. So once he starts, it's going to be continuous from then on. 
And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion. And once he starts, it'll be from then on. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion. Now he calls the church Zion, or daughter of Zion, in many places in the prophecies and in Hebrews 12. But there is a remnant, he's already mentioned here, who will be the stronghold of the daughter of Zion. The rest of the church will be going into tribulation and being martyred. But the remnant will come and be the stronghold of Zion. Unto you shall it come even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now when they're given dominion, that means given rule or leadership. Now Christ will be there dwelling with us, but he still recognizes the human leadership that he will put in place And he will guide and direct them to do the things he wants done. So he is not going with his own breath out to preach to the nations and to bring plagues upon them. He's guiding, directing those whom he does send. Just as he went back to his Father in heaven and told the apostles, You go do it. I'll be with you, but you go do it. It's the same here that he's going to do. Well, you could almost call the millennium then the second dominion, could you not? He's going to come and he's going to give dominion, power, over the nations to the church. The nations of this world will have no power whatsoever over God's church and his witnesses For three and a half years. And really even longer than that as they build the temple. There's just a slight interruption there when they come in and take over and the church flees to Zion. But they will have rule over the nations. And cannot be stopped or impeded. And will have plagues just like God put on Egypt. Same thing. Only they will have a different position in that than Moses and Aaron did. God sent those plagues on Egypt, and Moses and Aaron were there. Uh, And Moses did proclaim this will happen, but then God did it. This may be even more direct here at the end, where they can call them as they see fit under Christ's direction. So is that dominion, is that rule, or is it not? And the kingdom of God will have come in microcosm to the remnant church, with Christ there leading it. Now why do you cry out aloud? Why? Is there no king in you? Well, he died in 1986. And there's been no king since. Uh, There have been people who've tried to make themselves king, but nobody much listened. A few listened to this one and a few listened to that one, but no, there's been no one overall in charge in the Church of God since 1986. 
You can't count the Tkachas because they aren't the church of God anymore. They went off, two unclean birds, Zechariah 5, and set the church up on its base in Babylon. Babylonian doctrines, Babylonian presence, went right back into the middle of it. So you can't count them as kings over the church or as rulers over the church. Is your counselor perished? Yes, he died. Our leader, our king, our counselor. For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. Now, is this the millennium? No, we're in travail right now. What are we supposed to be doing? Isaiah 7, bringing forth the Christ child. And he says we've strained and strained and strained and not brought forth. Well, he says he's coming soon. (laughs) And he will be brought forth. So, when you find yourself in this condition, what do you do? The church is in travail. It has not been able, the whole church, to bring forth Christ. Even those who understand more have not brought him forth in the way that these scriptures talk about him coming forth. We haven't. Not as a daughter of Jerusalem or a daughter of Zion. So, here you are, pushing and pushing and in pain and nothing happening. So, when you find yourself in this condition, for now, at that time, shall you go forth out of the city and you shall dwell in the field and you shall go even to Babylon. You can't do that in the millennium. Babylon will have been destroyed. So this is talking about prior to that, when the daughter of Zion finds herself in travail, she's to leave the city and go dwell in the wilderness, even in Babylon. All right, we're still in Babylon, but we're out in the wilderness. We've fulfilled this, at least a few of us, at this point. There are a whole lot more who are going to hear and come soon. That's what the scriptures say. But somebody had to come out first and be there and establish a place so they'd know when they see signs and wonders there, they'll know where to go. They will recognize this is happening at Zion. How do I get there? Is what they say as they come just ahead of the Assyrian army. So, This is established just before the nation goes under to the invasion that is coming soon. They'll barely get here in time. It does say in Isaiah 52, though, Go not in haste, I will be your rear guard. Now, that's a different flight than Matthew 24, where it says you're in Jerusalem And you see the armies gather about Jerusalem, you flee to Zion. That is a very rapid one, where it says, don't even go back for anything, just go. But this one is not being done in haste. 
Now, that doesn't mean you sit back where you are in the middle of Babylon and stay there as long as you possibly can because you love it so much. People need to be working their way toward where God wants them. Not in haste, but certainly working that direction. So Babylon still exists, and he tells us to go there. Just leave the cities where its power is. There shall you be delivered. There the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So he's going to take care of us, the whole remnant, once they come out of Babylon and out into the wilderness. He's going to be here to take care of them. And redeem us from our enemies, whether they be some of them already here or whether they're coming against us in a much larger way, and I think it's speaking of both. Now also, you're going to get this done. Now also many nations are gathered against you that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. There are some things that are going to happen that is going to cause them to turn against God's little remnant. For one thing, Isaiah 44 and 45 will come into play, and I think that's getting very close based on what I'm seeing, that his treasures are going to be unearthed and loose the loins of kings. It is going to scare them almost into oblivion when they see what all is there. And they will hate it. They will despise it. They'll be jealous of it. They'll want to take it over. So enemies will come. Now if you start seeing some amazing miracles, signs and wonders, they'll hate that too. And they'll say, ah, that can't be of God. That's all fake. And on and on. But it will generate animosity. That's what it will do. So, they'll say, let her be defiled and let, let I look down upon Zion is what this means. Let us, let us destroy her and look down on her wreckage. But... They know not the thoughts of the eternal. So they're going to hate what God does with the church. And they're going to say, destroy her. But they don't know what God's thinking. Now there's a problem for them. Neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Why do you gather the sheaves into the floor? To thresh them. You beat the grain off of them. So he uses that analogy. If the ones who come against his remnant people are going to be put on the threshing floor and stomped to pieces. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. Now, does that say he's going to give her power and might from his spirit? 
Is this speaking of the millennium when they're supposed, God's people are supposed to arise and thresh the nations? No, there won't be any threshing done then. The threshing will have all been accomplished then, and Christ will come and rule, having put down all principalities and powers and nations and peoples and armies. This is speaking before then. When does he tell the church to thresh? Revelation 11. Go out. Tell them who God is. Tell them to obey God. If they don't, send plagues. Send them blood. Send them fire, hail, windstorm. Threshing is a violent thing. Have you ever watched a combine? Don't get in front of it and get in it. You'll come out the other end in little bitty pieces. So when it says thresh, it means thresh. We just read the story not long ago. You should have struck the ground six times, not three. Okay, you're not going to destroy those nations. You'll win a couple wars against them, but you won't beat them because you didn't beat the ground with the arrow the way you were told to, not with your might. So when God turns his men, his church, loose on this world, they're going to thresh. For I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves brass. And you shall beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain to the eternal. The gold is mine, the silver is mine, everything on this earth is his, and that which they claim is going to be taken away from them. And it will be used in his millennium by him. Their substance unto the eternal of the whole earth. Isn't he going to come back then and take over the whole earth and all the substance that's on it? But the beating and the threshing comes ahead of that, not after that. Seven last plagues take care of an awful lot of it. And then it says there that he will come, his saints with him, on a white horse with blood on his vesture, and he will put down finally every knee. So when it gets into the millennium, then is peace. So this is speaking of the context before that happens. It's speaking of the church now and in the very near future. Very near future. <clears throat> because the armies are gathering about our nation as we speak. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Those nations will gather. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of these shall he come forth to me, that is to be ruler in Israel. Dominion, judgment, rule, is going to be given to Zerubbabel, who will be the signet to the nations. Last two verses of Haggai. Now, it's also speaking of Christ in a larger sense, 
who will be truly the one in charge and men under him. But he's going to do this threshing by the daughter of Zion and her leaders. So the Assyrians will lay siege against our nation and ultimately against the church as well as they come into our land. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you be little, little flock, fear not little flock, out of you shall come forth he that is to be ruler, whose goings forth have been from of old and from everlasting. Now that's speaking of Christ himself right there. Uh, He will be the one in charge. Will it be the church and the remnant who provides the things that the church needs? No, it'll be the one who's always been. Because we can't be a wall of fire around ourselves. We can't be a covert from the heat ourselves. So this has to be speaking ultimately of his rulership and leadership over us in the things that he does miraculously to protect his church. So make no mistake, when he says, I'm coming and dwelling with you, that he's going to be here. And he will be in charge. But he's going to use men, so it's kind of uh, easy in some respects, verse to verse, to get mixed up there. Well, is that speaking of Christ or is that speaking of the rulers? Well, it's speaking of both. He will be there with them doing all this. Okay. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travails has brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. What does it say there in Isaiah 52? that the two would see eye to eye when the miracles come, the signs and wonders of Zechariah 3. This is saying the same thing. When they see Christ through those men begin to do these signs and wonders, then the remnant will return. That is the signal to them. Aren't there a lot of people in the church, you've talked to some of them over the years, or I'm waiting to see where Christ works. When I see where he's working, I'll go there. You've probably heard a lot of different people say that over the last quarter century. So that is in their minds. And that's what's going to draw their attention, is what he does. But it's going to be through men, just as it was with the apostles. Remnant will return. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the eternal... That would be the physical ruler standing in the strength of the eternal. Not by might, not by power, but my spirit, says the eternal. In the majesty of the name of the eternal, his God. (coughs) Won't we be pointing to God's majesty? He's the one doing all this. And they shall abide. For now shall he be great to the ends of the earth. The signs and wonders he starts with to draw the remnant are then going to go for three and a half years all around the world, the ends of the earth. 
And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. So this is all prior to the millennium, speaking of the church and the Assyrian coming into our land. Is a millennial. The Assyrian will have already done this when the millennium shows. And when he shall tread in our palaces, he's going to tread down Jerusalem, going to tread down the uh, newly built altar. Then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. So not just the two, but more than that, will go out against the Assyrian. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof, the entrance into our land. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. Now when you see him coming to do that is what Matthew 24 is talking about. Moving out into the wilderness away from Babylon is not in haste, but when this happens, and they take over Jerusalem, and they're gathering there, you flee from it, and you flee in a hurry. So he's going over the whole thing here. Waste the land of Assyria with the sword in the entrances thereof. And deliver us from the Assyrian. Well, Christ is going to be overall doing it, but he's going to use seven, even eight principal men in the process. Didn't he just say, arise and thresh, O Zion? Could God have driven the army off where Gideon went down with 300 men? He could have left Gideon home by his fireside eating dinner and done it all by himself if he wanted to. But he's always done it through men. <clears throat> and the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the eternal. Just a little water on the surface, not big, but as dew from God will be the remnant of his people who will have just chased the mighty beast power army away from our land. And the remnant of Jacob shall be as the midst of many as dew, as the showers upon the grass that tarries not for man, nor waits for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob <clears throat> shall be among the Gentiles, in the midst of many people, as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he go through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Does that sound millennial? I think not. Is that the way they're going to go through the nations of this world for the last three and a half years? You bet it is. Your hand shall be lifted up <clears throat> upon your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. They're not going to be allowed to come in and destroy the remnant in Zion. They'll be allowed to take over Jerusalem and the altar for that period of time. It even says there in Daniel 11, we read the other day, that he would enter into the glorious land. 
So that is going to happen, but he's not going to take over Zion. The wall of fire may be bigger while we're building the temple in Jerusalem, and it may shrink to just around the environs of Zion for the rest of the three and a half years that will go from there. I would assume that, uh, because we're going to have to have protection even as we build. I have no doubt of that. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Eternal, that I will cut off your horses out of the midst of you, and I will destroy your chariots. Speaking of our nation, our, our defense, our military is going to be destroyed. <clears throat> and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. So he goes back to what he's talked about in chapters 1, 2, and 3 that he's going to do to this nation when the church runs the Assyrian out of the Holy Land, the Glorious Land, or at least part of it, that which God has determined to protect for his people, not including Jerusalem. I will cut off witchcrafts out of your hand, land, or hand, and you shall have no more soothsayers. Nobody's going to have a thing to say. Your graven images also will I cut off. We don't have those, do we? So it's not talking about the church here. It's gone back to the nation. I mean, we may worship ourselves in self-righteousness and idolatry, but we don't have graven images uh, like the nation does. And you won't anymore worship the work of your hands. What is the work of our hands today? He talked about it earlier. Money, power, materialism. And I will pluck up your groves out of the midst of you, so I will destroy your cities. So religious worship will be knocked out, and the cities will be destroyed. This is still premillennial, very obviously. And I will execute vengeance and anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. There are a lot of stories from the past about the wars that were fought by Alexander the Great, by Napoleon, by Lenin, by Stalin, by Hitler, by whoever you want to read in history about, and some awful stories of millions and millions of people being killed under communism, which is now here in the last... 100, 200 years. Some terrible stories. But this will be such as they have not heard. It'll be worse than that ever was. So God is going to take care of his people and he's going to destroy the nations of Israel and ultimately the nations of the Gentiles. And then the millennium can come, but not until then. And he will have given his church first dominion ahead of time, ahead of the time when he will come as king of kings and lord of lords. He will come more quietly at first. Didn't he do that with the apostles? He went back to glory, and then he came back through the wall and talked with them here and there. said, I won't talk much with you until then. But he did come back to give direction at times. He came back to teach the Apostle Paul for three and a half years. 
So what he is going to do is not without precedent. He will be here giving us, under him, first dominion, setting up a microcosm of the kingdom of God, living in peace as an example to the rest of the world the way things could be if they would repent. That is going to be a powerful part of the message. Look at those people in Zion. We have. (laughs) Yeah, but they're living in peace. You could have the same thing. No. Okay, have blood then. God is going to set up a microcosm of the kingdom. First dominion to the church. And then when he comes bringing the church with him, every knee shall bow, and he will be king of kings and lord of lords, and we ruling with him directly. So it will be more powerful by far in the millennium than it will be ahead of time. But there has to be an example. Why does he tell us to be a light on a hill to the world if he isn't going to do just that with his people? He is. Look forward to it. Prepare for it. Let's get ready for it. But he's going to give the church power over the beast for three and a half years. Total power over. They can't stop them until the last three and a half days. And then their loins will be loosened three and a half days later when they rise to meet Christ in the air. We know who's going to win. And we know it can be us with him. So we have a great deal to look forward to. And we should be very encouraged that this time is very, very near now and won't be long until it happens.